There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Kirsty Major, Commissioning Editor here at The Independent, and this is Double Take, a podcast in which our writers come into the studio to read and discuss one of their opinion pieces. It could be their weekly column or something from the archives that shines light on this week's news. Today we're joined by our columnist and former correspondent in Washington and Moscow, Mary Dejewski, to take a look at her piece, A United Ireland is the Only Practical Solution to Brexit. She wrote this last August, and today we'll be seeing why her solution holds after the DUP rejected Theresa May's Irish border deal. If you found the UK government's first Brexit position paper on avoiding a cliff edge in trade borderline delusional, just try the second on Northern Ireland. A lot of Irish magic will be needed if the proposals set out there are going to have any chance of success. Three policies have commanded particular attention. On trade, most exchanges between Northern Ireland and the Republic would be regarded as local and nothing to do with international rules at all, except much hair-splitting about what constitutes a small and medium-sized business. For the rest, tariff matters and payments would be handled by a whole new high-tech system. Now think of the UK's record of digital project management and it doesn't bode well. As for the movement of people, well, there would essentially be no need for change. Any risk that the Northern Irish Republic of Ireland border could become a back door into the UK, or vice versa, would be minimised because the Irish Republic is not, and would not be, a member of Schengen. So the UK and Ireland could keep their own special passport-free regime while keeping the outer borders secure. Except that there are no passport or ID checks between the UK and Ireland, whatever sort of papers you carry. Indeed, the only way travelling by road you know you've crossed from the Republic into Northern Ireland is a sign saying that the speed limit is now posted in miles per hour. Any indication that you're crossing into another country is vanishingly discreet. Like it or not, there is a backdoor which predates, in fact, both countries' EU membership. Whether this long-standing special arrangement can continue after Brexit is another matter. How feasible is a soft border between a member and a non-member of the European Union? Then there's food safety. Standards in Northern Ireland, the position paper boasts, are high. So there really is no need for any special checks on goods crossing what would become the EU border. But how well would that cheerful acceptance survive the first whiff of contaminated eggs? horse meat masquerading as beef, or whatever comes next in either direction. Such problems were always lurking in the event of a UK vote for Brexit, and to an extent, with two different currencies, opportunities for gaming the system were always there. Strangely, though, the devolutionary focus during the referendum campaign was almost entirely on Scotland. What would happen if the Scots voted differently and by a large margin from the rest? They did. 
Would this spur demands for a new independence referendum? Yes and no. What would come next? Too soon to say. But the effect of Scottish independence in the event of Brexit was comparatively clear-cut. Scotland would become an independent state. It would be recognised as such by the UK and internationally. It would rejoin the EU. Oh, yes, it would. It could be required to join the Euro and Schengen, and there might well be a hard border with England, but everybody would know the score. The position with Northern Ireland is infinitely more difficult, and it was made more so because a majority of the Northern Irish voted to remain in the European Union. The margin, 56 to 44%, was not as sweeping as in Scotland, 62-38%, but it was solid. It was also bigger than the margin of victory for leave in the UK as a whole, 52 to 48, but also in England, 53 to 47%. One reason why Northern Ireland, despite its unionist majority, voted more like Scotland than England or Wales, may be that people on both sides of the sectarian divide saw EU membership as a kind of guarantee for the continuation of the Good Friday Agreement that had mostly brought peace. Without the EU, the relatively relaxed relations with the Republic, the free movement of people and free trade across the border would all be called into question. This is where we are now with the UK trying desperately to hold on to the gains from EU membership as they relate to Northern Ireland, while preparing to break from the EU in almost every other respect. It's neither a logical nor a comfortable position. No wonder Ireland's Prime Minister Leo Varadkar recently expressed his frustration, not just with the pace of negotiation, but with the whole UK approach. Happily and unhappily, there is a solution which is as simple and obvious as it is elusive. The one sure way to enshrine free movement, free trade, and regulatory clarity in relations between the two parts of Ireland is to put them back together. The North would thus remain in the European Union, which is what a majority of those who took part in the referendum voted for, while the rest of the UK, otherwise known as Great Britain, would leave. The only border needed would be the sea. How feasible would this be? Alas, despite the pro-EU vote in Northern Ireland, not at all, at least in the short term. The Northern Ireland parties may be finding it hard to form a new power-sharing government now that the politicians who made peace have left the scene and the union's share of the vote may be declining, but a forced march to unity risks the peace. The differences are not to be underestimated. From a distance, it's easy to condemn the recent clashes in the American South as only about a monument. But monuments and flags cannot be dismissed lightly. Over the decades, they've sealed Ireland's division. One person's patriot is another's traitor. The two communities remain fenced off from each other in Belfast and London, Derry. If they find it so hard to share a city, how can they share a country? And yet, is it really beyond the bounds of wise statespeople to devise a solution? Would a clearly federated state not be possible? A state, what's more, with world-class guarantees for the rights of what would become the Protestant minority? 
Is the fear that would precipitate a resort to arms really still there? Since the Brexit vote, the unity question has been very quietly, very tentatively reopened after 10 years in which the Good Friday Agreement had pronounced it closed. But a twist of fate, the Conservatives' need for the DUP parliamentary votes at once enhanced the status of the DUP in Northern Ireland and regrettably put any new thinking on hold. But such an obvious remedy to the Brexit Northern Ireland conundrum can't remain off limits forever. Demographic change in the North is already affecting elections there. Socially and economically, the Republic is a very different country from the one it was before it joined the EU. Arguably, the country that has changed least in its institutional attitudes, at least, is the UK. If only it could fully accept the Republic of Ireland as an independent sovereign state with no need for colonial era privileges such as passport free travel and votes in UK elections. If only it chose to halt the generous protection that stunts Northern Ireland's development and allows a loyalist minority to live in the past. If the UK made moves in this direction, some of the biggest stumbling blocks in the Brexit negotiations would melt away with the bonus of normalised relations between Great Britain and Ireland, even if, in the end, we in the UK decided not to leave. Hi Mary, thank Hi. you for joining us. That's right. So you wrote this piece back in August, yes. and you almost <laughs> predicted this week's biggest news story, which is the DUP throwing their weight around. My first question is, Surely they must have agreed something with Theresa May before she went out to Brussels. What caused the change of heart, do you think? Well, this is very strange. I know people were saying, um, after what looked almost like a sort of walkout by Theresa May, um, that maybe it was all about theatrics, that um, maybe um, it was sort of partly arranged in advance so that um, the Prime Minister made it look as though she was being hard to get, um, which would um, suggest to the DUP that maybe um, she was really going all out out as far as she could um, and this was really for the for, for the drama and extra persuasive power um, but if that's not true then it just looks like rather incompetence and just um, taking things for granted and I think probably if there's anything that anybody simply can't take for granted it's the DUP and the issue is that it's kind of squaring a circle. Something will have to give in this whole situation. There has to be some sort of regulatory alignment between Northern Ireland and Ireland because of the Good Friday Agreement. But Brexit necessitates that that's not possible. Yes. What do you think will give? It's very, very hard to see at the moment. Um, I think probably every civil servant on both sides of the border has been looking for some creative solution. Um, but it's very hard. And in fact, it was very hard to see right from the beginning. Um, it seemed to me that among all the difficulties, this was going to be the biggest because exactly for the reason that you say, there are two completely contradictory requirements here. And it's very difficult to see how any of them could, you know, it, it, it's not 
something that on either side can be sort of moderated or solved by a matter of degree because um, the border of a sovereign country um, to an extent it can be sort of negotiated away on a bilateral basis but what we're talking here is not a bilateral basis what we're talking here is something that's going to have to be a new border between the UK and the Irish Republic and the problem exactly as you say was that the Good Friday Agreement was basically built on a sort of mutual understanding and ambiguity that that border would it would sort of exist and it sort of wouldn't exist so it would be there in principle but in practice it wouldn't be um, so everybody could sort of behave as though there was a united Ireland, while at the same time everybody could be entirely confident, depending on their particular sympathies, that actually there was no united Ireland. Well, it's those chickens that are coming home to roost. And it's very difficult for me. I mean, my favourite solution for this is if you like, I mean, it is related to, to my sympathy for the idea of United Ireland because I think that um, one of the Irish Republic's suggestions was that um, a sort of notional border should run um, down the Irish Sea so that for customs purposes and freedom of movement purposes, um, Northern Ireland was subject to the same regime as the Irish Republic. But of course, then you have the British, but especially you have the DUP and unionists in Northern Ireland saying, yes, 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 but we are part of the United Kingdom. We should be treated exactly the same as, say, Yorkshire or Devon. And the idea that they would have to show their passports, which is probably what would happen, and that lorries would have to go through um, some sort of customs check um, between, say, Belfast and Scotland, that is something which, at least to the Northern Irish, is totally unacceptable. As to the British, I mean, I suspect it's unacceptable to those of, a, of unionist sympathies in the particular parts of the Conservative Party in Parliament. But if you put it out to a, a referendum in the country as a whole, I wouldn't mind betting that there'd be quite a lot of sympathy. We're going to pause for an ad break and then we'll be back for more from Mary. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at. Like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824. 
You say in your piece that there's the demographic shift. Do you think that the younger generation is in favour of a one country island or a federated state version? I think that's a very difficult question to answer. Um, what I do think is that it seems to me, and I think the results bear this out, that with each successive election in recent years in Northern Ireland, um, the what used to be quite a safe um, Protestant and Unionist majority has gradually been eroded. Um, so, you know, there's always been this prospect um, as a huge shadow of suspicion in the North um, that a time would come when Catholics and people in support of a united Ireland, which is not necessarily the same thing, mm. um, would actually outnumber the old-style Unionists and Protestants. Again, not necessary, but more likely to be the same thing. Um, I, you look at, you know, segregated education, especially in Northern Ireland, and you think, well, maybe it's less a matter of age, in fact, um, in terms of sympathy for um, a united Ireland than it is um, actual numbers in terms of who who is that the that Catholics are in uh, in are growing in number and the Protestants are declining in number, e even as both countries, both the United Kingdom as a whole and the Irish Republic, are becoming more secular. Um, so I think you look at that and you could say, well, you know, further down the tracks, twenty years, fifty years, um, there is a prospect. Um, of a united Ireland by consent. The problem is, if you like, all this is coming at entirely the wrong time. And it also affects decisions in Scotland and Wales. It's. Do you feel like there was a case, I mean, people have thrown this around, but do you think that it's true that the British government didn't think about Ireland when they put Brexit on the table? I think they didn't anticipate that it was going to be such a gigantic problem. It seems to me that they didn't see the contradiction between the Good Friday Agreement and what would happen with Brexit. And it also seems to me that they didn't, there were two things that they didn't take seriously. Um, one of them is that um, the European Union would be, um, at least so far, um, so relatively united. Um, about what is required and that a Brexit, if you are going to be outside a customs union, outside the single market, then all the things that you had in common with the Irish Republic and the other parts of the European Union, they weren't going to apply. And that was the choice that uh, the, 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 the UK had made. Um, so I think there was that that they underestimated. I think they also underestimated well, prob probably the, um, the the misgivings, to put it mildly, um, in Northern Ireland. Um, and of course, the political um, geometry from the fact that Theresa May didn't actually win an outright majority in the election. 
But I think beyond that, those were sort of circumstantial things on the sidelines. I think the other big thing that they completely underestimated was how far the Irish Republic is a sovereign country and a member of the European Union. And the popularity of the EU in the Irish Republic is one of the highest across the whole of the European Union. Um, and I think they, they, they totally failed to take that into account. I, I, I have no idea how you can ignore the one EU country you share a border with. <laughs> how they managed to do it. Um, I, I wanted to also ask your opinion, sort of taking a step back and having been someone who's covered international relations and diplomacy for years from the perspective of Moscow and the other side of the Atlantic and um, the whole Brexit situation. Did, did you ever see it coming? No, I completely... I, I, that's not completely true. Um, around April, before the referendum, I remember writing a column and being um, concerned, really, that it seemed to me that the, the, the Brexit arguments um, were taking hold in a way that I hadn't expected and that they had an emotional tinge to them, which is always much more um, persuasive to my mind, having watched some of these sort of processes elsewhere, um, it's the emotional aspect um, and the identity aspect. Um, it always seems to me is much more persuasive than citing the economic figures. And it also seemed to me that um, George Osborne in particular um, and the people around him were going around the country saying... Um, Brexit could be absolutely dreadful for the city of London. It could um, reduce the prosperity of the country. Um, but particularly if there are banking regulations and all the rest of it, London would cease to be this sort of centre. And I think what they absolutely failed to anticipate, that there were millions probably around the country, especially outside London, who were cheering in response to that, who said, terrific, this is great, no, bring it on. So that it didn't have the effect that I think outside London um, I think there was a, a, a big misjudgment about what arguments were playing in different parts of the country but certainly by the time it got to the referendum um, I thought that um, I thought that Remain would win and I thought that they that, that they could win um, by much more than the, the 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 sort of quite small majority that was being forecast. So when the first results came in, um, and I think Sunderland was almost the first the yeah, first result was. that was seen as sort of telling as a bellwether for the rest. Um, that that then you could see Nigel Farage having practically conceded within the first half hour. Then everything sort of turned around, and it was fascinating to watch. Um, but I also have some misgivings about how far, you know, a, a majority, okay, the turnout was, was very good, um, but a majority of 5248, that is not a gigantic majority out of those who voted. Um, and in the country as a whole, you're talking, I think, about 37% of the population. So what seems to me to be an enormous mistake, which I simply don't understand how this was made, in almost any other country, if you hold a referendum, you make two stipulations. One of them is that you have a minimum turnout. Well, in this case, the, that would probably have, uh, have reached the threshold. 
Um, but you also have um, on a decision which is equivalent to changing the constitution in effect, um, you need to have a, a, a minimum differential in the vote. So you need, say, um, a, 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 a one-third differential or you need to have a majority, you know, as in the American Senate, something like two-thirds two majority to pass a change in the constitution. And there was none of that. So this referendum was able to be won by a very small majority, effectively to change the whole constitutional development of the UK for the future. That seems to me to be a colossal mistake. And it's a mistake of which the ramifications will will be much broader, I think, than we realise. And my last question was going to be about how this places the UK in the broader spectrum of polarity as a, as a state, you know, against America, against Russia, because you wrote a piece last week about how our reliance upon the special relationship with America puts us in all sorts of difficult situations right now uh, with President Trump. Um, so how do you see that playing itself out? Do you see the rise of other states in our place, like, like France and Germany? Well, I think that the... Um you know, the, you look around at how um, how the UK has been playing this since the vote, um, and especially since the election. And there are essentially two two things that are said. One of them is that Britain can return to be being a sort of global power that it doesn't have sort of exclusively re relationship with the European Union. So it can look around the world. And um, Boris Johnson has been sent around the world um, essentially to try and. Um, renew ties with all sorts of other countries which may or may not be working. Um, on the other hand, there's this nice slogan which says we may be leaving the European Union, but we're not leaving Europe. So there'll always be a sort of privileged relationship with Europe. But of course, this may not quite be how it looks from continental Europe. Um, and it's always been that the British have sort of... Um, in a way, straddled the Atlantic. Um, and so for the UK, there's been all this stuff about the special relation with the United States. Um, and two things have been happening with that. The, the sort of headline thing that's been happening is, of course, Donald Trump, which has made it much more difficult for any European countries, including Britain, um, to have any sort of special relationship. But I think in a way that obscures um, a longer term process, which is that the United States in a way is tiring of um, foreign interventions, of trying to be global policemen, of, try, uh, of trying to be global top dog. And that was something that predates Donald Trump. He's the latest um, and in a way the most um, strident um, articulator of that view. Um, but it goes back quite a long way. And so I think the idea that Britain can sort of replace sort of special relationship with the European Union by reviving its special relationship with the United States, that's not primarily to do with Trump, that that's not going to work. Um, that's also to do with the United States. Um, but I think there's a, the, the, is, if you like, there's a second aspect um, to post-Brexit British foreign policy too, which is that the country, even among Brexiteers, is very split on what it actually wants from post-Brexit foreign policy. 
because I think that, that, that there's a sort of um, illusion probably um, put about quite a bit um, by Remainers, which said, oh, the people who voted for Brexit, they were, they, they were all the people who sort of sing Jerusalem lustily and look to... Um, back to the empire with great nostalgia and how we can resurrect in you know, a colonial ties and lord it over the world. But I'm not convinced that that was um, uh, the main reason on foreign policy why people voted for Brexit. Um, I think there was an equal and opposite tendency, which was that people were absolutely fed up um, with the way that Britain as a medium-sized country had been sort of behaving um, as though it could um, control other people's destinies to great cost to the UK. And um, mistakenly, if you look at, you know, you look at Iraq, you look at Afghanistan, you look at Libya, and you say, well, you know, none of these were hugely successful. They were very expensive um, in terms of blood and treasure to the UK. And they also um, probably um, helped precipitate um, the refugee crisis, which I think was a, um, a big consideration for people voting Brexit. So you look at all those things together, and it may well be that there are actually quite a lot of people who don't want a more assertive more global foreign policy after Brexit. Um, what they want, actually, is um, for Britain to be um, more self-reliant, but also more enclosed and less outward-looking. And, you know, we can all have views as to whether this is a good or a bad thing. Um, but I don't think um, the consequences of that, as opposed to a more global role, should be discounted. Well, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Please rate, review and subscribe on iTunes. Helen Hodnot produced this episode. I'm Kirsty Major. See you next week. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.